if the theme of the earlier message was death, I think um, being Easter Sunday, you know where we're going. Raised to life. Raised to life. Matthew chapter 28, starting our reading at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we seek now to study your word, I pray that you would bless your word to us. Please help me as I speak. Please help us all as we listen. Father, I pray that I would speak only according to the wisdom of God. Let me not speak according to the vain imaginations of men nor the doctrines of demons. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that understand and obey. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, the Son of God, the good man, the one who had not broken the law of God, had been unjustly and cruelly crucified. No worse thing was ever done. I tell you now, no worse thing was ever done. This was worse than Adam eating of the fruit. This was worse. This one was God, the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah, the only good man, the only Saviour, the only Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom God had promised. The one to whom all the world was required to bend its knee. The one who was to rule with the rod of iron. The one truly great person to walk the earth since Adam fell into sin. Falsely accused and tortured to death. Shamed, spat upon, publicly humiliated. Death by a cross is a cruel and wicked way of being killed. Usually, usually the victim was crucified naked. Now, if you ever see paintings of the crucifixion, they usually show Jesus wearing a loincloth. That may or may not have been the case. Generally, the Romans crucified, stark naked. The whole idea was complete and abject humiliation. The complete and abject dehumanisation of the person being crucified. He was dead. You know, if uh, the Roman army was good at anything, it was good at killing people. It's what they were paid to do. You know, you didn't fool them. They weren't idiots. He was dead. Remember, we're told in the Gospel of John that 
when it looked like he was dead, but, you know, he seemed to have died very quickly, a soldier took a lance, a blade at the end of a spear, and he stabbed Jesus in the side, through the ribs, right up into the heart cavity. And blood and water flowed out. He was dead. They made absolutely certain he was dead. You've got to understand, for those Roman soldiers who are on the execution detail, to fail to kill him would have resulted in their own death. When you're given a job like that to do, and if you fail to do the job you're given to do, you get killed. Well, what do you do? You make sure you get the job done. He was dead. What do you do to dead people? You bury them. You lay them in a grave. The Jewish practice of the day was to lay the body in a tomb with spices, a great amount of spices, as much as the family could possibly afford, and to allow the body to decay, to rot away, and come back many years later. You then open the tomb, you collect the bones, and you put the bones in a box called an ossuary. So in preparation for that long-term process, the body of Jesus was laid in a tomb, wrapped with spices, Various things in order to try and disguise the decay of death. In order to try and disguise the stink of corruption. He was laid in a tomb. And later on, later on, when the commitments of the Sabbath were over, when his followers could actually, according to the Jewish law and custom, go to the tomb and take care of the body, they went to find the body. But we know what happened. We just read it. They did not find a body. They did not find a body. And I point out to you that no one has ever found a body. No one has ever found a body. Oh, the disciples took it and they hid it. Their whole upbringing is Jews. Their whole customary religious upbringing is totally against such behaviour. You don't go near bodies because they make you ceremonially unclean. Why do you think the women went? Because the men would have been too worried about their cleanness, their state of holiness, as to whether or not they could have went into the temple. And you're suggesting they took a stinking, rotting body and carried it through a town and buried it somewhere. And then they managed to keep a secret, even though most of them were tortured to death. Ever tried to keep a secret? Ever tried to conspire, to cheat at a test or some such thing? What happens once two people know a secret? It ceases to be a secret. (laughs) It ceases to be a secret. The ring of those in the know just gets bigger and bigger. It seems to happen all by itself and the conspiracy eventually falls apart. And so here we have these disciples. There are 11 now. Judas is gone. Another disciple is to be called later. And then the Apostle Paul is to be added to the group of the apostles. Nearly all of them are tortured to death and yet they keep the secret even though they're tortured to death knowing all along that the religion they were preaching was based on a lie. Does that sound realistic? Does that sound possible? Does that make sense? I mean, you might tell a lie. You might tell a lie. But can you think of anything 
that you know is a lie that you would build your whole life upon and allow yourself to die for? And you know it's a lie? You build your whole life upon it and then you die for it and all along you knew you were lying? Does that make any sense? Is that possible? Clearly, the apostles believed, knew, understood. Jesus was dead and then he was risen and they had seen him post-death alive. And they knew that there was no body to miraculously produce from somewhere. The tomb was empty. No body was found. And they built their lives upon it. I repeat that. They built their lives upon it. That was the fact that governed their every action. From that time forward, they built their lives upon it. Think of the Apostle Peter. Before Jesus died, he's asked at night, Standing by a fire, by a servant girl. You were with Jesus. You know Jesus. No, never seen him. Who are you talking about? Stranger to me. I'm sure you knew him. You've got the same accent and all. No. Why are you even looking at me, girl? Don't know a thing. Know nothing. Come on, you're a Galilean. You were with him. I was out fetching water. I saw you were one of the 12 following around at his ankles. I swear, I swear. Let God hit me with a bolt of lightning. I didn't know him. He cursed himself, remember? He, he said with curses, I didn't know him. Peter, but turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Forty days later, 40 or so days later, Peter at night, standing by a fire, scared of the servant girl. Remember that guy? 40 days or so later, he goes to the middle of the Jewish nation, the, the worshipping centre of the Jewish nation. He goes to the temple. And basically he preaches loud enough for thousands to hear. Now, how would you do that in a day when you didn't have PA? <laughs> well, my friends, you'd get your back against the wall and you'd project your voice like this. You'd square your shoulders. You'd bounce your voice off your chest cavity. And you'd get very, very loud. And he preached to thousands of people who only a matter of about a month ago had been saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And if he's really the son of God, let him come down from the cross. And then maybe we'll believe in him. Do you still call yourself the son of God? He preached to those thousands of people in the temple at the absolute top of his voice. He took a stand. He squared his shoulders. He played the man. He built his life upon that which he knew to be true. Jesus had said, I am the son of God. I will be crucified and I will be raised from the dead. He had seen Jesus raised from the dead. He had seen Jesus ascend on high to be enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And suddenly Peter had courage. Suddenly Peter was willing to stare down the crowd. Jews, Romans, people from all over the world, he didn't care. I've got something to say and I'm going to say it and you're going to hear it. Put a, I put a little word in on the side here, my friends. 
if you want the courage to stare down the world around you, maybe you need to build your life upon the truth of the gospel. Because let's be honest, the church in Australia at the moment, in many ways, and I'm not you know, trying to be too clever here, but in many ways lacks courage, lacks the firmness of its commitments. You know, one of the reasons that the church seems to be going backwards in Australian society is that a vast number of people who are in church actually don't have the courage to take a stand against the wall and to shout to the coming thousands, Jesus is Lord, he's risen from the dead, he rules on high. Repent because the day will come when he returns. Lack the courage? Well, perhaps we lack the courage because we're not actually truly committed to the truth. We haven't built our life upon the truth. Peter builds his life upon the truth. And he's called to be an apostle and he's called to be a preacher and he's called to preach prophetically. But even so, we're all Christians and we're all called to have a word to say for the Lord Jesus. Some will be preaching to thousands and many will not. Even so, you're called on to have the courage, to have the word to speak when you get the opportunity to speak it. And what does Peter say? Picking up in Acts chapter 2 at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I add amen. Amen. Raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Psalm 16 he quoted, David, speaking of himself, David was, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Or let your Holy One see corruption, yet David died. And as Peter points out, they know where the tomb is. At least at that time, in that day, they knew where to find the tomb. You know, tourist attractions. 33 AD and you've already got a tourism trade. There's a little hole in the ground or in the side of a cliff and there's a sign above it says, Tomb of David. Two dollars to view. There's a tomb of David and we know where it is. We know how to find it. David wasn't speaking of himself, he says. David was a prophet. David was speaking by the power of God's Holy Spirit. David understood that he would be raised in, in, we would say in Christ, in the person of his ancestor. Remember one of the titles that Jesus had? Jesus, son of David, heal me. Jesus, son of David, heal me. The scriptures spoke of the resurrection. And Peter declares it with power. What do we know about this resurrection? What do we know that has been accomplished in this resurrection? Why is it that I would tell you now? My friends, there are doctrines that you must hold dear in order to truly call yourself a Christian. You must be Trinitarian. You must believe in one and one only God, subsisting as three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You must. It's not an option. If you don't hold to this doctrine, don't call yourself a Christian. You might be very religious, but if you do not hold to it, you're not a Christian. You must. That is the way God has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures. You must also hold to the doctrine that Jesus, the Son of God, in his humanity was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He died. In his body, he died. He purchased God's church with his own blood. He died. He was, ra- he was laid in a tomb. That's what you do with dead bodies. You must also hold to the doctrine that on the third day, he was raised. He has risen from the dead. Once again, If you don't hold to these doctrines, don't call yourself a Christian. Call yourself what you please. You might be a religious person. Fine. But this is one of the central abiding doctrines of Christianity. This is one of the things that divides the sheep from the goats. We like to talk about unity in the body of Christ. I believe in unity in the body of Christ. I do. And I believe the body of Christ are those who are in Christ. Not those who are outside of Christ. I have no unity with those who are outside of Christ. And one of the things that sets the difference between those who are in and those who are out, those who are sheep, those who are goats, those who are wheat, those who are tares or weeds, 
One of the things that sets the difference is the doctrines that we hold to. There are essential Christian doctrines and people who do not hold to them do not have the right to call themselves Christians and we have no reason to listen to any of their teachings, no matter how well educated they may be. The Lord Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, was crucified, buried, and on the third day he was raised. Not only was he raised, he ascended on high and he rules at the right hand of God the Father. What was accomplished in this resurrection? Well, let's have a look at a few passages of scripture. Turn, if you wish, to Romans chapter 1. Starting reading at verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So what is Paul telling us? What does this resurrection prove? It proves that everything Jesus said was right. He had the right to say it. For example, John chapter 8, towards that, basically the end of the chapter, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It tells us the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? Well, they understood what he was saying. They understood that phrase, I am. Ego, I, me, in the ancient Greek. Why is that so significant? Well, go back into the book of Isaiah in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you find again and again and again the phrase, I am Yahweh. I am the God of all creation. I am the God who redeems. And every time, ego, I, me, I am, I am, I am. Go back then. Into the book of Exodus, chapter 3, God speaking to Moses. Moses says to God, who shall I say has sent me? And God says to Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's, He's saying he's God. He's saying that the God of Abraham was me. Me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's the same claim. I am. When he claims to be the Son of God, I and the Father are one. Even now, he says, the Father is working and I am working. When he walks across the water and he sees the disciples terrified in the boat on a stormy night, do not fear. I am here. (laughs) Do not fear. Your God is with you. I am. He claimed to be God, the son of God. He claimed to be one with the father. I and the father are one in purpose, one in power, one in works. I am. He claimed that all judgment would be entrusted unto himself. I will be separating the sheep from the goats. I will be enacting God's judgment upon all of humanity. 
When you think about the magnitude of the things that Jesus said about himself, there are things that you can't say about him. There are things that you can't say about him. People like to say he was a great teacher. Well, my friends, I've had some reasonable teachers in my life, some pretty good teachers. None of them claim to be God and have the judgment of all of humanity held in their own hands. And if they did make such a claim, I would have laughed them out of the room. I was one of those difficult students, I admit. Anyone who was ever my teacher would admit that I was a pain in the backside. I would have laughed them out of the room, sarcastically. You claim to be God? Yeah, right. I know you too well. He was a good man, showing us the way to God. Oh, really? Do you know how many people there are in the world today who claim to be Jesus? Particularly under the sort of umbrella of um, Eastern Orthodoxy. In places like Russia and the Ukraine and Greece and Turkey. You know, where the Eastern Orthodox Church in its, in its sort of big tent idea sort of holds sway. Do you know how many people there are who claim to be Jesus? There are thousands of them. Thousands. And they've got followers and the followers give them all their money and these people live high on the hog. They're rich, they're wealthy, they're influential. And these stupid followers are quite willing to accept that uh, they are privileged enough to have any young girl they so desire because, after all, they claim to be Jesus. Okay. Are they good people? (laughs) You know, are they good people? No, they're not good people. They're saying, I am God, the son of God. They're saying, I'm showing you the way to God. They're saying I should therefore be privileged and have all of these things given to me on a platter. And they're not good people. A great teacher, a good man. Now, he was at least a great teacher. And he was at least a good man. But my friends, his resurrection tells us that he was the son of God as promised in the Holy Scriptures. His resurrection tells us that every word that he spoke was true. His resurrection tells us that we can build our lives upon him as Peter and Paul and the others did. Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten son of God, truly God, truly man. The great I am. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 tells us that he was delivered up for our trespasses. That's Jesus being put to death. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Whose trespasses? Ours. Trespasses, sins, transgressions, failure to keep the commandments of God. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. Powerful word, justification. Justification, what does it mean? It means to be considered righteous or innocent. It basically means that you've won a case at law. You've been justified. You've taken a complaint to court and the judge has decided or judges have decided in your favour And you've been justified. You've been declared to be in the right. You have been declared to be without blame. Raised for our justification. Raised to reign at the right hand of God on high. Raised to cover our sins. Raised to bring us, 
you and I, sinners that we might be into the very presence of God, we have standing. We have standing. I could not get into the presence of Her Majesty Queen of Great Britain. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. Who knows? But I wouldn't get there. She would have to reach out to me somehow or other through her own people. I'm not expecting it any day soon. I don't have standing in the royal court. But in the actual court, in the real court, because things on earth are but a copy, sometimes a good copy, sometimes a poor copy, but they're but a copy. In the heavenly court, in the presence of the one true king whose reign lasts forever and ever and ever. Amen. In that court, I, you, we have standing. We have standing. Our saviour reigns. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's a picture in the book of Esther. Remember, Esther was at great risk. She had to act in order to save her nation and she had to go uninvited into the king's court. And remember, she sent word out through Mordecai, her uncle, look, have everyone fast and pray for me. Because, you see, I'm going to enter the king's court uninvited and if I don't have favour in the sight of the king, if he doesn't hold out the scepter of favour to me, there's only one other alternative. Either I get the sign of the king's favour or I get killed. It's a 50-50 thing. So I want you to have everyone praying for me. I'm about to enter the court of the king without an invite. And we remember the king held out his scepter to her and invited her in. He was pleased to see her. Remember what I said? The things on earth, they're copies of the things that are real. Sometimes they're good copies. Sometimes they're not so good copies. King Ashuerus, he's not a good copy of the great and high king on high. He's not. He is one of the weakest men in Scripture. When you read about him in the Holy Scriptures, you find that he basically never had a thought that was his own. He followed the leading of everyone around him. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there's something to be learnt. There's something to pick up from that scene. You see, my friends, our Saviour, our King, our Brother, our Lord, the Lord Jesus himself, the one who shed his blood for us, He's the king that sits on the throne in heaven with a scepter in his hand. And when we enter into his presence, we are always welcome. Always, always, always. He intercedes for us. He was raised for our justification. He gives us standing in the one royal court that counts. In the one royal court that counts. You want to get a petition through to the king? Guess what? We pray to the Father in Jesus' name. And he intercedes for us with groanings. He intercedes for us in the presence of God. My friends, we come into the presence of the king and we are welcome because he was raised for our justification. 
Remember, God lawfully overcame his own law. His law says that sinners die and that sinners are clothed in death and that God cannot look upon sin. But then his son, in pure innocence and holiness, died clothed in righteousness. He died and his righteousness is now counted as our righteousness. Martin Luther's illustration of this was a dunghill covered by the snow. How did he get that one? Well, you're thinking of Germany. You're thinking of a place where cattle and stock were kept indoors over winter and the farmer would go through and clean out the muck day by day. Keep cleaning out the muck. You end up with a muck pile by the side of the barn. And when it snowed, the muck pile got covered in snow and it looked all clean and white and nice. And that's his picture. He says, yep, we're sinners. We've been given a new heart. We've been given new desires. We've been born again, yet we still remain on this earth struggling and battling with our sins. But in the sight of God, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We've got an introduction in the court of heaven. (laughs) My brother sits on the throne. (laughs) My brother sits on the throne. I'm related to royalty. You're related to royalty, my friends. He was raised for our justification. And my representative, he's good and right and holy. And his life was good and right and holy. And so God looks upon me with favour. He looks upon you with favour. If you are in Christ, you have been justified, declared to be in the right. You have royal standing in the only court that counts. You have been proclaimed to be in the right. He was raised for our justification. And so we find... The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He's able to make a boast. He's able to make a boast. You see, Paul knew that he ought to die. He understood, I'm a sinner. I ought to have been put to death. I was a persecutor of the church. I was a hater of God. Though I thought I was righteous and holy, the truth is, in God's sight, because I had rejected God's self-revelation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was a sinner and an enemy of God. But Christ revealed himself to me and he made me an apostle. And Paul is able to boast something. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's his boast. I have been crucified with Christ. The law says I should die. Jesus died. Therefore, I'm counted as having been killed. That penalty that should fall upon me, that righteous requirement of God that I as a sinner ought to die, it has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been crucified in Christ. But even so, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, if 
Jesus had died and remained in the grave, how could Paul go on to the second part? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, it's good. The punishment fell. You know, I'll tell you what salvation is not, my friends. I'll tell you what it's not. Imagine a set of scales. Sin on the one side, righteousness on the other. And you're all guilty of sin and I'm guilty of sin too. So the scales are tipped down towards the sinful side. And then along comes Jesus and he adds just enough righteousness to balance the scales again. And after salvation, you walk out with a clean charge sheet. There's no list of accusations. Out you go, do as you please, life will go on, all good. What's the problem there? What's the problem there? What are you going to do by the end of this day? I hope I'm not the only sinner in the room as I ask you this question. But what are you going to do by the end of this day? What might you well do within the next one hour? What might you be doing even right now in your own dreams imagination and imaginations? It's called sin, isn't it? You know, walk out of here feeling all good and right. And some fool cuts us off in the traffic or, you know, some fool makes us wait three hours in a queue for something or whatever it might be. You know the story. I know the story. It's called sin. It's called sin. We're going to sin. A balanced scale is not going to help me because the moment the Lord Jesus leaves me alone with my scale all balanced up, I start adding sin to the sin side again. the scale needs to go into the fire. You need to destroy the scale. The scale does nothing for you. A balanced scale, a clean charge sheet. If it were possible, I suppose it would be nice to have a fresh start, but in the end it doesn't help. Not if you're left to your own devices. You need the righteousness of Christ all day, every day for the rest of your life. You need the ongoing forgiveness of sins all day, every day for the rest of your life. You need the convicting, converting work of the Holy Spirit all day, every day for the rest of your life. You need a life that is not your own. Jesus has risen from the dead. And so like Paul Any of us can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, if he was still in the grave, you wouldn't be able to say, but it's Christ who lives in me. You wouldn't be able to say my ongoing life is Christ's life working through me. We're not talking in human or worldly terms here. We're talking about where we stand in the sight of God. We're talking about heavenly terms. There's only one judge in the end. We've got to be on good terms with that judge. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not only have my sins been paid for, but I have been declared righteous in the sight of God and I have been given such clothing that I can enter into the presence of God and there be received with graciousness, with love, with joy. And my friends, if you're in Christ, that same boast is yours. It is yours. I have standing in the courtroom of heaven. Amen. Because Christ was raised from the dead.
If Christ were not raised from the dead, our salvation would not be complete. If Christ were not raised from the dead, we could have no assurance of eternal life. If Christ were not raised from the dead, we would not be justified, for our faith would be in a liar. And liars have no standing in the courtroom of God. But my friends, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised to life. If we are in Christ, his eternal life is our eternal life. His standing in the presence of God is our standing in the presence of God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, enlarge our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes. Help us to see the greatness and the beauty of this gift of salvation that you have poured out upon we, your people. Father, may you bring many, many people into the kingdom. We pray that you would build your church. We pray that Christ would be glorified from shore to shore, from sea to sea, all over this world. Let every knee bow, let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.